Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. So when there's domestic violence orders that are in place, one of the things that I believe, and this is my own personal opinion, is that they should have counselling service immediately, mandatory counselling service for these men for at least six to one year so that they can learn to change their behaviours and that they need to then be accountable and identify where they need to make those changes and how they need to be able to address it. Preventing family and domestic violence against First Nations women and in the pursuit of justice, a family's campaign to ban the use of spit hoods in carceral institutions. Latoya is committed to seeing the eradication of spit hoods and the use of spit hoods in South Australia. Apparently, my understanding is that they've already banned them for use in youth detention but they are still officially permitted in adult prisons and in adult situations. Now, that must end. Lives are at risk. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. And joining me to discuss the big ticket items of the week are Industry Professor at the Jumbana Institute, Lyndon Coombs, and ABC Indigenous Affairs reporter Isabella Higgins. Lyndon, this week we're going to focus on the budget. What did you make of it overall? Overall, it looked like a Labor budget. It was obviously big spending. I think that was necessary. It certainly didn't look like a sort of traditional Liberal budget. And it hasn't been consistent ever since Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey came in slashing, talking about debt. That seems to have all been forgotten for some good reasons. But yes, it was overall an interesting budget in many ways, but I think a necessary one. I think their hand was forced in a number of ways due to COVID and the response that we we need to that. So yeah, an interesting budget for a coalition government. Isabella, what were some of your key observations about it? I just think it was interesting in the lead up, there was all this talk that it was going to be a women's budget, that it was going to have a women's budget statement right up the front. And, you know, there was, I think, about $3 billion worth of spending on women. And it's quite the contrast to last year's budget where, you know, there were criticisms that there wasn't enough in it for women. The key part of that was childcare. And then it was interesting that a big conversation emerged being like, well, is childcare supposed to be a women's issue? Isn't it a family's issue? And obviously, this is in response to some of the issues the government has faced over the handling of the Brittany Higgins problem and several other things. And look, as an Indigenous journalist who goes in and does the lockup, you know, sometimes I'm flicking through these budget papers being like, oh God, what's in it for our mob, you know, like looking, trying to find something. And this time it felt like there was a little bit more than usual, you know, never as much as what everyone wants, but, you know, there were some packages around family violence, support for Indigenous families. Um, There was some additional funding for young girls to go off to boarding school and then there was a whole bunch of money to do more research around the prevalence of family violence in the Indigenous space. So look, it's never as much as what people would want, but for someone who analyses these things from an Indigenous perspective a lot, it felt like there was a bit more to unpack and there was also 
some other little things in there, like the fact that the government will be scrapping CDP within the next few years. So there were a few interesting things in there, things that I wasn't expecting. Certainly the scrapping of CDP wasn't something that I was expecting to see in the budget this year. That is, of course, the government's controversial remote job seeker scheme that sees people in remote areas working for longer than those in metro areas. And there, of course, had been a lot of criticism from Indigenous communities over the years of that program. So there was some real surprises as well. Lyndon, I just want to see what your observations are following on from Isabella's analysis there. And she makes the point that often it's a bit of a surprise of what's in and what's out. From your experience, how much consultation with Indigenous communities is there in terms of these decisions? I think very little. The CDP was a surprise. I'd be interested to watch how they go about the next phase of that. There was also some extra money for prevention of Indigenous suicide, which I think is uh, one of the key issues facing the country. But, you know, I, th- I felt from the Indigenous point of view, it was like a maintenance budget, big dollar signs for, you know, those traditional things, education, housing, health, economic participation. And the thing that I worry about is those big dollar signs don't translate into big changes. And while those sort of big numbers are there, they get lost. And what the key issue is for me coming out of, I think, an Indigenous budget that was yeah, fairly traditional with a couple of extra things in it, we always go back to how the money is spent. Is this money actually going to Indigenous people directly? Is it going to Indigenous-controlled organisations? So for a long time now, the Commonwealth Government and other governments have said that Indigenous people are best placed to deal with issues, but it's not reflected when the money comes around. And that's the important part for me, is seeing where that money lands and and how it's distributed. A commitment of $500,000 over the next two years to bolster Indigenous heritage protection has been labelled inadequate by some commentators. Isabella, I know you've covered a lot in the issue of uh, heritage protection over the last couple of years. What were your thoughts on that? Oh, look, I think it's fair to say that probably won't touch the sides of what needs to happen and the reforms that people are looking for in the space. There was a bit of other money, you know, about $35 million for prescribed body corporates in the Indigenous space to work through different issues. It seems like that pool of money was more focused on those bodies being able to drive economic participation. So I think there's quite a few things. I mean, it was almost like with that amount of money, it was like, why bother in some ways? And I think that's sort of what some commentators did say. And that was the other thing was there was a lot that people were looking for in this budget that wasn't there. There wasn't funding also for closing the gap initiatives. The budget did say there was a few lines in there saying that's coming later in the year. I think there were a lot of people also looking for maybe a bit of national leadership, a bit of national money to drive some changes in the justice system that also wasn't there. And I think there were people who were looking for some really big spending on social housing, on Indigenous community housing, and a lot of people felt like that just wasn't there either. Isabella, the aged care and disability sectors are set to receive further investment, obviously important in the mainstream, but of special significance to our mob. And this investment comes after Royal Commissions were held into both sectors. What do you make of this? Are Royal Commissions starting to have an impact? I think Royal Commissions lay out very clearly the framework for change and they lay out very, very clearly what the issues are. And 
they make recommendations about what needs to be changed. Often, you know, more work needs to be done to figure out what the best way is to do them. But I think what we see so often is that we have these huge inquiries that cost a lot of money and they deliver this very, very comprehensive framework of what needs to change. And then over years, political will for these issues kind of ebbs and flows. And what you see is kind of a patchwork of change that happens. You know, some of the easy stuff that happens, there's, you know, some money thrown around to get some key changes happen, but then, you know, all the other stuff that needs to happen with it doesn't get done. Uh, So the funding that came through for those two areas that you just said, I think a lot of people were really happy to see that. Again, to Lyndon's point, it's how that money gets spent, who gets to spend it, if First Nations organisations get any say and how that affects our mob in those sectors. So, look, I think they definitely lead to change, but it seems like what we have seen is that it's never the full and comprehensive change that the Royal Commission suggests that we need. Lyndon, what were your observations about the budget's impact on higher education, especially given the impact that sector has faced from COVID? I think if anyone was in any doubt about the ideological outlook of this government in terms of higher education, that could be Put to rest after the budget, the universities didn't benefit during the COVID relief and have been given another smack now in in this budget. So at a time when, you know, the world is as it is, we're facing incredible challenges with technology, with pandemics, a whole range of things. Universities are the places that we look to, to sort of provide some relief, some guidance, some remedies to a lot of these things. And apart from an ideological dislike of the institutions, it's really difficult to fathom or to see a business case to reduce funding to universities. I haven't seen one. I don't think they've even been bothered to give one. It's just that blatant now and they've, you know, set the lines in terms of their interaction with the higher education sector. Well, speaking of alternatives, what did you make of opposition leader Anthony Albanese's budget reply? Yeah, I thought it was good. You know, it's it's a very difficult job being in opposition. You never get the same sort of coverage of that. And whenever you say something, people say, well, of course you can say that you're not in government. I thought it was a good Labor budget, looking at, at lots of, you know, social areas that I think will provide really good returns. I, I think that Albanese as an opposition leader, while not being spectacular, has been consistent. I think his budget response was in in line with that and probably a perennial issue with Anthony Albanese is that he could always go harder. But I think he's made a a strategic decision to be very measured around these things and that's kind of how he framed that, that response. Isabella, the Coalition has received a boost in the polls in recent weeks. From all your observations and understandings of the area, what do you think is appealing to voters? I mean, it's also the question of do we trust the polls anymore? You know, after <laughs> That's the a question, last, isn't it? <laughs> yes, after everything we've seen around the world, I think we're all taking polls with a grain of salt these days. I think, look, what we've seen through the pandemic is that Australians like to feel safe, that we have you know, enjoyed the protections our governments have given us. I think that's really powerful with voters at the moment. Uh, this budget being a sweetener for a lot of places, I guess, 
you can see how that would resonate with voters how that would, you know, compel them and change a shift in mentality. I mean, there's this big question also lingering over the government, which is vaccine rollouts. And I think we would all agree that hasn't been entirely smooth. We're nowhere near where we wanted to be in terms of targets. So these small changes in polls, I think everyone's kind of taking them with a grain of salt. I think after a big spending budget, it's not surprising to see a bit of a boost. And there's some really big challenges ahead for the government to continue to keep Australians safe throughout this pandemic. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt and my guests tonight are Isabella Higgins and Lyndon Coombs. Well, Isabella, you just mentioned the vaccination rollout and it continues to come under criticism with revelations that only 4% of those living in disability accommodation have received the jab. What did you make of that and what do you think of the vaccine rollout more broadly? Yeah, well, I mean, they were a priority group that was supposed to be getting this very early on. These are people who live with very complex conditions, who, you know, are very much at risk if this virus gets into our community more broadly. I think no one will forget some of the scenes we saw earlier in the year when it got into aged care facilities. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, a lot of Australians living with a disability are forced to live in aged care homes too. So I think widely commentators have said that is not good enough. Advocates have said that is not good enough. It needs to be a priority. And I think, you know, the Prime Minister himself admitted that, but whether there is kind of the action being done behind the scenes to make sure that is rectified, I don't really think we're seeing that at the moment. And I think there's broadly across the country, the level of hesitancy is quite alarming. Uh, I was visiting family recently around southwest Queensland and the level of hesitancy amongst people who I expect would be, you know, desperate to get the jab, they were saying they wanted to wait. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of communicating to the Australian public why this is needed. I think some of the media coverage around blood clots has not helped at all. So there's a really big job there, I think, to move forward to conquer hesitancy, but also to fix those long-running supply issues that we've had now for the last few months. Lyndon, picking up on something that Isabella said, there are figures that have revealed that the Northern Territory has the lowest COVID-19 vaccine utilisation rate, which is particularly concerning, of course, given the high proportion of Indigenous people that live there. What do you put that hesitancy down to? And following on from that, what are your general observations about the rollout? Yeah, that that's surprising and disappointing. I think we discussed on this show before how well Indigenous communities have done, how well Indigenous community-controlled health organisations have performed ever since the start of COVID-19. And on the back of that, there was, you know, an acute awareness of the vulnerability of Indigenous people, and particularly older Indigenous people, to these kinds of things. So to see that sort of statistic is really concerning, but I would hope that our community-controlled health organisations will get on top of that and get about their business as they have been. As I say, they're not helped with this rollout. I think we've been lucky. We are a lucky country in many ways. I'm old enough to remember Greg Hunt saying the eagle has landed a couple of months ago when a couple of hundred thousand vaccines landed at Sydney and we had rolling coverage of it. And on the back of that, just complete failure at every step of the way and the lack of urgency just because our rates are low, we know how quickly that can change 
And there just doesn't seem to be the urgency. So even if we don't have the vaccines available, there's still no communication, public relations process telling us what we're going to do in the interim. And that leaves us exposed. Finally tonight, the Olympics of the music world, Eurovision, got underway this week. But unfortunately, the Australian contender Montaigne did not make it past the semi-final round. But she did make history as the first person to compete without setting foot in the host venue, instead submitting a pre-recorded video performance. It did make me wonder, though, who would you like to see represent Australia in the global phenomenon that is Eurovision, Isabella? I have to admit, I'm not one of the Eurovision fanatics. I'm I'm not. Like, I follow it when it happens, and I like to see Australians doing well. I would just love to see some more First Nations artists, I think, at the front. I mean, I know it's definitely not a forum where we hear a lot of rap music, but I'd love to see, like, Baker Boy just go in, mix it up or something. Or, you know, there's, like, an amazing uh, female First Nations artist, Myesha. I can imagine her being incredible up there on the Eurovision stage. So they're my picks. I have no credentials in this space, so, you know, ignore if you will. I'm not sure what credentials are necessary. I think yours are as good as anybody's and definitely as good as Lyndon's. What's your suggestion? Yeah, credentials here, none. And it is Eurovision, so what are we doing there anyway? But um, if we were to, to send one, I see Stephen Oliver has his show at the Opera House at the moment. That would be amazing. And if not, a really big voice that I think does so Eurovision would be Casey Donovan. So I think either of those two would be my pick. I have to say, I did see Bigger and Blacker, the Stephen Oliver show, and I am with you. I think he would be fabulous. He would certainly make it sexy and he would be incredibly controversial. Thank you both so much for being with us this evening on Speaking Out and sharing your insights into the topics of the week. My guests this evening have been ABC Indigenous Affairs reporter Isabella Higgins and industry professor at the Jumbana Institute, Lyndon Coombs. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Despite an increased number of support services, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women remain the most at-risk group to be impacted by family and domestic violence. Soon you'll hear from one woman who is using her own experiences to create awareness and bring about lasting change. Right now, though, some music from Central Australian singer-songwriter Frank Yammer. Here he is with Jay Creek. Angola 
Nyara palole Nyinara munga tiringo Mura panya chela ngoro Kena napitango Tarpango namo Ale kendo Wati karengu yao ngayanya Mora Benchila Mungar Tirinkule Wanti Karinkola Ano Mora Panya Ano Mora Wanti Karahano Nayanya Kulindewie Janahano Dito Kana burka jina mana nangi ngurakoro, kana angola hanangi burka dito, kana angola hanangi burka dito. Frankie Amma there with Jay Creek, a song taken from the compilation album Jukapa, The Story. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Family, domestic and sexual violence has been a national focus in recent years. Greater media scrutiny of the rising number of Australian women dying at the hands of their current or former partners has fueled community demands for change. The latest figures reveal that one in four Australian women have experienced physical or sexual violence committed by a current or former partner since the age of 15. And in Queensland alone, police are responding on average to as many as 400 cases of domestic violence every day. And the numbers are worse for First Nations women, with the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare finding that cohort the most at-risk group in the country to be impacted by domestic violence. Sandra Creamer is a one-year Kalkadoon woman, lawyer and CEO of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Women's Alliance and a domestic violence survivor. Sandra, it's such a privilege to have you with us this evening. Welcome to Speaking Out. Thank you, Larissa. I'd love to begin by getting just to know a little bit more about you so we can understand better who you are. Can you tell us where you grew up? I'm Kalkadoon Wanyi. I grew up in Mount Isa and I spent many of my childhood days out in Camberwell. I have, there's 12 in my family. 
I've got three sisters and seven brothers. And yes, my father worked out on a station all his life and my mother passed away when I was young. So we were raised in a really big family environment with my aunties and uncles and they lived out in Camelwell. So between Mount Isa and Camelwell, I had my growing up life. So Sandra, it sounds like you had a really great big family, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how that shaped your worldview or what did shape your worldview? I think that foundation did shape my worldview because we really had a lot of love in that family and we really had a lot of values and morals. And when you come from a big family, of course, there's always going to be arguments and debates. But my father really made us sit down every night and had dinner together and we had to really put a lot of bygones aside and just continue on. So we learned in life, you know, don't hold the grudge and don't have conflicts with each other. But also about that foundation of being strong in a family and and understanding also where we came from and about that kinship relationship. So that really laid down a strong foundation for me. I think it gave me my resilience too because my father worked out on a station. We didn't have too much food or anything as we were growing up. And But it's that resilience of who you are, the strength of who you are, the identity and having that connection to going out to the bush and waterholes all of the time. But as well as knowing that we're strong, a strong family, we're a strong group of people and a strong individual. For the benefit of our listeners who aren't aware of it, what is the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Women's Alliance? The National Aboriginal Women's Alliance, we really try and work with women on the ground and look at what their issues are and advocate for what they really want. So we've written quite a few submissions. If you go onto our sites, you'll see the submissions that we've written to the Special Rapporteur to when there's changes in legislations. And we try and advocate in different ways, many different ways for our women. And to us, it's not all about domestic violence, but it's also empowering our women and making sure that they have the right information to what they need to grow as an individual and to empower themselves, their family and their communities. Are you able to share with us a picture of what your personal experience was with domestic and family violence? Yeah, it was really difficult because I didn't really say anything to my family for quite a while. Um, It was not easy because you have that cohesive control as well. And at that time, you don't really know what it is. But then there was a lot of physical violence and everything like that. And I think that I remember, you know, when I was pregnant with my third child, I really, you know, got dragged around the house. And I thought, I really have to do something and leave. But at that time, I felt a bit embarrassed, I think, because... In those days, it's like you stay with that person that you're married and everything like that. But my brother found out and he was he was so good. His wife told him, actually, his partner told him because one night I ran away and I went to her house to stay with my children. It was just a one night. And she told my brother, my brother said to me the next day, you need to leave. He said, I'll do whatever I can to help you to leave. He's always been by myself and been very supportive of that, as with the rest of my family. But... It was really, you had really dark days because she, I was in that situation for quite a while. And then I, at that time, I really didn't have an education, didn't have any jobs and I wanted to leave. And then I'm, I 
jumped from the frying pan into the fire and it was just really dark days for me. I can't express how hard it was. And mentally, when you're coming from that sort of environment and you live it for quite a few years, it's really, really difficult to overcome. But I got good counselling and I felt that I really need to make a change in myself because the anger that they inflicted you and everything and the hurt and the brokenness, it carries with you. It doesn't change overnight. And I found that I had that in me, but I didn't want to be like that to my children. And one of my children said to me, oh, Mum, this isn't really you. And I thought, no, it isn't me. I really need to make a change. And so I did. And as a family, we were really able to, I've been able to heal myself and then talk through my to my children and discuss things with them. And we really all have an open relationship, but it has to be like that because they witnessed a lot of things, they seen a lot of things and it was a, a difficult life for them because we were here by ourselves and we really had at times no electricity on. I remember having our car repossessed once and, you know, we were just eating bread and tomato and onion gravy at times and I thought, you know, I just need to really, really get help and it was all through that process of giving help that I was able to have confidence in myself to go and get a job, to be able to talk to people and to be able to change myself. So it doesn't happen overnight. It took quite a number of years to do. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. It's so important to hear such remarkable stories so that we can better understand what it's like. So it's a very generous thing for you to do, but it's also very inspirational to see where you've come to. Because you've had such personal experience in this field and now you're there on the ground helping others, from your perspective, are there adequate resources currently for community-led services to support victims fleeing domestic violence? No, there isn't, Larissa. There's none at all. And I feel one of the big things that they did take away was the victims of crime support in the courthouse when they used to have a victims of crime set up in every courthouse. I think that they were quite good, especially for women who are in domestic violence or any children who were going through any child abuse or anything. They were a good system. And then what happened then is they changed the victims of crime compensation around Australia. There's all different processes for that, and that's all run through the courts. So that all changed. And then so when you have people out in remote communities who especially were going to court and women who were going to court and they didn't have anyone there and they didn't have that victims of crime support that was set up to be in the courts. That was one of the biggest failures of all. And then out in the remote communities where there's very limited resources, English, as we know, on some of these communities is not the first language. So there's a different, there's a breakdown of language barriers, there's a breakdown of understanding the court process, and there's hardly any places where the women can go for domestic violence. There are women's shelters on some of the communities, but some of these communities are small communities where there's only maybe about five or six houses on some remote, very remote communities on town camps or anything like that. So they don't have those resources. They have to go into larger town areas to get that. 
So there's very limited resources. I think even in the cities, there's, like I said, the Victims of Crime uh, has been taken away. There's limited resources for women's shelters, limited resources for women who want to have counselling. There should be all different kinds of counselling services that's happening, but no, all of those things, there's very limited One of the things you mentioned about your own experience was the use of coercive control against you. The Queensland government's now proposing to introduce laws that make coercive control illegal. What are your thoughts on the proposal? Do you think that that's a way of addressing the issue? Well, it is a really serious matter. It is very serious. Some women are living that life and they don't even know it. I think one of the things is that it Something needs to be done to make women safe. I'm not quite sure whether that's the answer of making it legal. Well, maybe it should be. But what happens in the end is I think that you have domestic violence order and as many things as you put in and legislate them, there's no help for the men. And it's them who who need that help because they're so controlling. So when there's domestic violence orders that are in place, one of the things that I believe, and this is my own personal opinion, is that they should have counselling service immediately, mandatory counselling service for these men for at least six to one year so that they can learn to change their behaviours and that they need to then be accountable and identify where they need to make those changes and how they need to be able to address it. Because the sad thing is that I've had a lady write to me about how badly treated and what this person done to her animals just to put that fear in them. And that's the thing. It can just really put a lot of fear into people and it just doesn't affect the individual themselves. It can also affect everybody in the house and then some other members of the family who don't even live in the house or friends or anything. It's just that fear that people can put in just by their actions and their behaviour. You've already mentioned some of the things that are issues in the area you're working in, but what other things do you think can be done also need to be done to improve the situation for First Nations women and families? I think one of the other things that can happen, and I've actually, my daughter fosters children and she has four foster children. And what happened is that she got asked if she could have another baby. And so that would have been five children under four years of age that she would have had. And she said, Mum, I can't do it. She said, it's very hard for me. I'm working and I'm trying to study and and my partner and I, we love the little ones, but we just, it would have made eight children altogether. So what I did was I phoned the hospital here and uh, the board member of the Rockhampton Hospital, Leanne Wilson, and, and I said to her, Leanne, we must do something. The other issue that is missing with our women is reproductive health. Because women are so traumatised, they're getting their children removed each time. You know, it's traumatising these women and in serious situations, they don't know what to do. And I think that, so we contacted the hospital together. The hospital have now are working with us on looking at putting contraceptives in the maternity hospital here. We're working with them at the moment so that they have the names of all contraceptives that are available for women and that those women who are specifically in domestic violence or having their children removed, it is the only safe space for them to say, I want to be able to have some sort of contraceptives. Can you help me? We're also working with a lot of women with Westpac and Marawa Law in doing e-leader business training. And a lot of our women out there are becoming 
business owners and they want to be able to get themselves into ownership of businesses on their communities or within their families. And we've had quite a few women who were single mothers. They share their stories at these workshops and tell us how things are affecting them and and what they're looking for in the future. And a lot of them are saying, well, we just want to be able to get out of poverty and make money and we want to be able to do the different things. And we want to make sure that we're creating some sort of employment for our children or our families or our communities. So they're the three big things that we're actually working on at the moment. Well, you are an inspiration in so many ways. Thank you for the work that you're doing on the ground, that really important work. And thank you for spending some time with us this evening on Speaking Out. Yeah, thank you very much, Larissa. I really appreciate it. The remarkable Sandra Creamer is the CEO of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Women's Alliance and a domestic violence survivor. And if you or anyone you know is experiencing difficulty, you can call 1800RESPECT. That's 1800 737 732. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. The inquest into the death in custody of Wayne Feller Morrison has continued in Adelaide. George Newhouse is the principal solicitor at the National Justice Project and he acts for Wayne's mother in a number of matters. George, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get into some of your specific cases and the issues you're working on, can you tell us what have been some of the key human rights areas that you've focused on? Look, our goal is to see the elimination of all forms of discrimination. So we focused initially on the plight of immigration detainees who were taken to Nauru and to Papua New Guinea and detained there, but not provided with any meaningful assistance or health care. And we were successful in bringing the kids off Nauru and, and bringing them back to Australia. We've also, over the years, worked very closely with Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal-led organisations, working with families of those who've died in custody and also who've been harmed or even died in healthcare. And we see a real connection between prejudice and racism and those deaths. And we've committed ourselves to highlight and draw to people's attention the connection between prejudice and deaths in custody and deaths in healthcare and fight for justice for those people. But more recently, that's led us to focus on disability. There's often an intersection between incarceration, detention and disability and harm. And this year we're really focusing on working for people with disabilities. Just picking up on that, George, you mentioned that you work with Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal community organisations. One of the things we always stress on speaking out is how important our community-controlled organisations are. And, you know, we've often highlighted the fact that they need support. And I was just wondering if you can talk about how you, with your work and the work that you're doing, have approached that relationship and and the role you see our community-controlled sector playing in the human rights space. We see First Nations-led organisations as being central to creating change and moving forward. We see our role as supporting them where there may be a gap in experience or, or knowledge. And ultimately, our aim is to exit the space. We have around six 
First Nations lawyers or paralegals working with us. And I hope that one day they will take the lead in this area in a sovereign-led organisation so that our role is diminished or not required. I mean, that would be my ultimate aim. But we work very closely with Deadly Connections, for example, in New South Wales, with activist organisations in Western Australia, Jambana here in Sydney, Craig Longman and Paddy Gibson are doing a fantastic job in this space and we work very closely with them. And we are actively involved in a health justice partnership where I think we're the only non-Indigenous organisation. So we see ourselves as taking a backseat but very supportive role in the work that's being done out there and only doing activities where there's a need. George, I just want to pick up on something else that you said earlier, which is you did allude to the fact that there are patterns that emerge in the work that you're doing in the numerous deaths in custody matters that you're involved with. Can you talk a little bit more about what the patterns are that you've seen in that work? I think that deaths in custody throw into stark relief the failures of all our governmental systems and the prejudices that exist in our society. A death of an individual in state care is ultimately not just, you know, what led up to that moment of death, but it's often a lifetime of failures of our systems. It's a failure of our health system. It's a failure of our education system. It's a failure of the justice system, of policing and of our carceral systems. They all let down that individual who passes away. And there's often an intersection because of all those failures of disability and race, often gender as well. We're seeing a rapid rise in the incarceration rate of Aboriginal women. So the patterns we see are an overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in the criminal justice system because of the failures of police, because of the failures of our education system, because of the failures of our health system. And those are the patterns that we're seeing play out in coronial inquests. What's even more difficult is trying to get coroners to focus on those patterns because coroners have traditionally just looked at the last moments of people's lives to find the cause of their death and not looked at the systemic failures that have led to that point. And if they did look at those issues, they might make more meaningful recommendations that would have profound impact on people's lives. We've had several families that have been going through the death in custody process where a loved one has died. And one of the things that is a recurring theme is the lack of support for the families as they go through this strange process. And we often understand that going through the court system is an alien thing for First Nations people, but the coronial system is also a very strange system to navigate. And you've highlighted some of the issues with the coronial system's approach to deaths in custody. But as somebody who's working there as a lawyer with the families, from your perspective, how could the coronial inquest be improved to support them more? Uh, Look, you've raised a really important issue. And over time, as a lawyer, I've come to understand that coronial inquests are really re-traumatising events 
for families. They don't provide the justice that they're hoping to achieve. They are actually an extension of the colonial process. So if Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are having a negative experience in the criminal justice system or the justice system generally, why would coronial inquests be any different? They are just the last time that they're probably going to have an interaction with the justice system. Obviously, death is final and the inquest is the final interaction. And I've learned over the years that, sadly, and there are some exceptions, the experience of First Nations people in the coronial system is re-traumatising and does not deliver the outcomes that they hope for. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some positive outcomes, but they're incremental and they come at a price. Now, to answer your question, I think the critical factor is to have First Nations coroners appointed, First Nations investigators appointed. Families do not trust police investigating police or prison guards. They want an independent process or they want to see people with lived experience taking them through the coronial process. I think that would be an excellent start. And if you had investigators with lived experience and coroners with lived experience, you would start to see a more sensitive and respectful process to Aboriginal people. You've been working closely with the family of David Dungay Jr. on a range of issues. What's the latest in his case? Look, David Dungay Jr.'s case is one of Australia's outstanding injustices. The coroner found in David's case that there was no need for the IAT team, you know, the SWAT team within the prison, to burst into David's cell and overwhelm him with force. There was no need. Now, force is only legal in a carceral situation where it's necessary. Now, the coroner has found that it wasn't necessary. As a result, we sought legal advice from one of Sydney's leading criminal barristers who says, if the force used was not necessary and that force led to death, there may well be the prospect of charges being laid. The family has been unable to get the DPP to investigate whether laying charges is appropriate or not. Now, for any other family, they feel that if four or five Aboriginal men had been involved in the death of a non-Indigenous person in circumstances where you know they were on physically on top of him and he passed away, they would be charged. And they don't understand why the DPP can't even look at the situation. They're also extremely disappointed that Safe Work New South Wales has failed to prosecute the Justice Health and the Corrective Services Department for a death in a workplace. If someone lost their finger on a building site, Safe Work New South Wales would be all over them. In the case of Mr Ward in WA, that tragic case where he passed away inside a heat prison van, Serco was prosecuted. And the family do not understand why in New South Wales, no one will lift a finger to bear accountability for what happened to their son. 
There was a recent edition of the ABC show Compass that highlighted your work in the case and one thing that really stood out was the relationship that you've developed with Latona Dungay, David's mother. What does it take to be a good ally in those circumstances? Well, look, I, I've never studied this. It, uh, I think my relationship with Lee Turner and other clients just comes naturally and probably from my own life experience. But it really comes down to listening, being respectful and educating oneself about people's situations and listening and hearing what they've got to say. Much of that is reflected, you know, in, in the Uluru Statement, Voice Treaty Truth giving people voice, listening to their voice, hearing the truth and not making people feel uncomfortable in their situation or critical of who they are or judgmental of who they are or where they've been is vital. And, you know, treating people with respect. I think if anyone does that and speaks truth, you'll have a great relationship. The coronial inquest into the death in custody of Wayne Feller Morrison continued in Adelaide this week. What were the circumstances of his death, George? Well, first of all, I want to say how much I feel for Latoya and their mother about the way they're being treated through this coronial process. Not through the actions of the coroner, but the process of the law and the appeals and delays that they've had to suffer are just extending their trauma. One of the problems with Mr. Morrison's case is that we actually don't know how he passed away. We know that he was thrown into the back of a prison van and a number of guards got in the back of the van with him. He was in a spit hood and he came out of that van unconscious and unresponsive. And one of the traumatic factors in this case is that Latoya and their mother do not know what happened to Wayne in that van and the guards lying on legal privilege to refuse to tell the coroner and give the family some closure about what happened to Wayne Morrison. So two years after this inquest commenced, the family still don't know what happened to Wayne. So, George, as you say, this has been really traumatising for the family Latoya has been a tireless advocate during this time. We had the privilege of having them on the show recently and hearing that very personal perspective. But since we've got you here, can you give us an update on where the case is at? Look, um, as you say, this is an incredible family who, despite the overwhelming tragedy and trauma of what they're going through, have been tireless in their efforts. So, there was a formal complaint made to the South Australian Ombudsman and the Ombudsman was critical of the way that the Department of Corrective Services handled Wayne's case and also in the way that they treated the family and they have received an apology as a result of that complaint. But they're not stopping there. Latoya is committed to seeing the eradication of spithoods and the use of spithoods in South Australia. Apparently, my understanding is that they've already banned them for use in youth detention, but they are still officially committed in adult prisons and in adult situations. Now, that must end. Lives are at risk. 
spit hoods are being used and there are alternatives. Guards can wear the perspex shields to shield them from spitting if that's what they're worried about. And lives are at risk while South Australia continues to use spit hoods. And I know that Latoya and her family will not stop until that happens. George, just finally tonight, this is really hard work. What drew you to it? I think potential for the use of inquests to drive change was recognised in the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. That inquiry had the foresight to see that a proper investigation into a death could lead to change. And it's a strategy that we are using at the National Justice Project and we've focused on for the last five years. So although this is an incredibly traumatic and stressful and distressing area to work in, I still believe that we can create change from these tragedies and there's a lot of learning to be done. But the Royal Commission had the foresight to see that there was potential the change to come out of these inquests and we're here today to put that into action. George, thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out this evening. Thank you. George Newhouse is the Principal Solicitor at the National Justice Project. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we explore how the repatriation of Indigenous cultural remains and objects can contribute to the reconciliation process. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.